Greetings, rabble-rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. Greetings, audience. We're here for another special edition of Blueprints of Disruption. I've got producer Santiago Hello Quintero on again with me today because there is something we definitely need to talk about. And we wouldn't be worth our name, Blueprints of Disruption, if we didn't talk about the hopefully impending Ontario general strike. We're in quite a situation over here in Ontario, an exciting one if you've been dying for a general strike to bring down this government since they took office. But here we are. We're going to give you the basics of what's going on, obviously, to get you up to speed, especially for all our listeners outside of Ontario. But I mean, who's not paying attention to this right now on the left? Seriously, but we'll fill you in. Uh, We're also going to get into the core issues of what this means. It's not just CUPE's contract on the line. It's not just their right to strike, right? So, we're going to deep take a deep dive into the current labor strife here in Ontario, but we're also going to talk about the the idea of broadening this, right? Maximizing this moment. Santiago and I, we finally met in person. Uh, we met up at Queen's Park yesterday, which was Friday, the first day of this strike. And... Although it wasn't the largest rally I have been to at Queen's Park, I was excited to be there. I I think there was a certain showing of solidarity there, and it had the feelings of the beginnings of something, and quite a lot of the union leaders that got up on the podium had me excited. So, you know, before we kind of get into the exact details of where we're at, how was yesterday for you, Santiago? I mean, for me, days like yesterday are essential when you do the kind of work that we do. Because being reminded that these are issues that a large number of people do care about, that these are the issues that people are willing to fight for, that people are willing to stand together in solidarity against oppressive tactics, that is incredibly important and just Honestly, when I got there, I just, all I wanted to do is just like stand there and just like feel it, take it in. Soak it up. Yeah. Because, you know, there it's so easy to fall into like a nihilism and a hopelessness when you do this kind of stuff. And I needed to force myself to, to really feel what that was. And like you said, I mean, it wasn't the biggest, I mean, of course, also we went for the, the second shift. Um, If I'm not mistaken, I think the first shift might have been a bit bigger. Um, Not quite sure. I've been running around since yesterday. But I mean, the other issue is that like this was something that was far beyond Queen's Park, right? There was a show of solidarity across the country outside of all kinds of offices. And also like for people who couldn't, because also a lot of people, you know, I mean, Friday, you know, you're working for a lot of people and not everybody can take it off, of course. And and, and whenever we, we... are approaching these things it's, it's a good idea to like also remember privilege when it's these things because some people who are at the absolute edge are not able to sacrifice a day's paycheck or or time and and their support is still as valid as that of anybody who 
can show up and that is something you know there's been all kinds of show supports on social media messages being sent out people talking to each other i mean this is very clearly something that is reaching an incredibly wide audience across ontario and across canada right yeah that's why i wasn't disheartened by the size of the crowd because of the pickets i drove by on my way there Mm -hmm. uh in small towns uh north of the city it was surprising to see the turnout and the energy of that turnout. So I just imagined those numbers replicated in so many towns in Ontario. And like you said, uh, we held we opened a Twitter space yesterday and there were people from right across the country that were deeply invested in this. We're talking about solidarity actions. And yeah, this certainly has captured folks attention. So what are we what are we talking about? Um, let's give folks the basics, right? We always assume everyone knows where we're at, but we've got 55,000 CUPE education workers here in Ontario currently on strike. Now, folks would say it is an illegal strike, but only because the premier used the Notwithstanding Act, a loophole in our charter that allows him to override our charter rights, their right to a collective bargaining agreement, their right to strike, uh, all of those things were taken away from them. Uh, in the aptly named Bill 28, Keeping Students in Class Act. Um, I mean, we'll link that awful bill to the show notes, but I think we've seen on social media one of the most glaring lines in that act is this act applies despite the human rights code. So, I mean, that says a lot about a piece of legislation. So this is levied against 55,000 educational workers, folks who have been on the front line all during COVID. These are the people that make our schools run. We're talking about ECEs, caretakers, office staff, library staff to my, you know, and the use of these workers varies across uh, the the school boards in Ontario. They can't run without them, right? So kids were out of school. Uh, there is a move to pivot online. We'll see how that turns out because that's not done without these support staff. Uh, so that would have been just that, right? It would have been these folks out on strike illegally, Um but let's stop just for a second. That doesn't happen every day here in Ontario, a wildcat strike, right? We quite often call for strikes and the response is, well, we're not in a legal position to do that. CUPE really went out on a limb here, Santiago, and um, that was the first flame. That was the first light, right? We always see ugly negotiations between the province and, and workers. That was kind of normal, uh, the going back and forth in, in the public. But they defied legislation by not going to work on Friday. I mean, that light a little bit of a spark in you. I mean, I definitely really appreciate that because that's what's needed unequivocally. That's what needed right now. I mean, you look at what are the implications of what is happening right now, the implications of the use of the notwithstanding clause, the implications of how quick this action was done too, the implication that carries for not just labor, this is the bare minimum that needed to happen, I think. I, I think it was absolutely essential. And also, I, I was just thinking, uh, as I was, uh, as you were talking, 
really, this is a bit of an unusual tactic from Ford because if you think about it, they could have let QP strike for like a week and then done this. And then, you know, maybe I, I, I would guess that the public outcry, it would be bad, but it wouldn't be quite as bad. But they did it right at the start. They didn't even let them get a chance to have like a legal strike, right? Because to be clear, the conservative government, the liberal government as well, they've trampled on um, labor before, right? Uh, they've mandated back-to-work legislation in the past, and and that hasn't gotten the response that this has gotten, right? Yeah, this was next level. I think I've heard someone describe it as using the nuclear option right away. And that's why the response to this is so important, because if that's... If that's some sort of litmus test for how he can treat all the other public sector unions that are going to have to negotiate their contracts, um, including the teachers, if this were to just go by uh, without much note, without much fight, surely uh, this would be exactly what would happen to everybody else negotiating with the province. And not only that, you would have private sector folks looking at this type of negotiation and they don't have the notwithstanding clause to protect them, but it sets a really ugly precedent. We have to keep in mind there's some really ugly premiers out there now that are also watching this to see if they can get away with using the notwithstanding clause. Uh, and just for folks that might not understand what it is, uh, it was put in by Trudeau's father and the whole crew putting that document together but you have to remember it was it was really important to placate the premiers into signing whatever was was put together and jurisdiction is always a fun topic uh, when trying to get a national document like that signed so the notwithstanding clause was put in there so premiers could uh, override the charter so that is not just a right to strike that is every single right that you find in the charter is as easily swept away with the notwithstanding clause as as this has been. So, you know, that's really why I think this has had a different reaction than just typical back-to-work legislation, because it has such far-reaching implications, right? When we looked at uh, the United States, Roe versus Wade, and the, the precedent they were using to make that decision— Folks understood it was also going to open the door for them to strike down other rights that had been won. And so, I mean, this is a tactic being used worldwide to slowly strip us of our rights. And, um, yeah, this is just such a big issue. And clearly, OPSU got the message, right? Because as soon as QP went on strike, I think, like, hashtag general strike was trending. I stand with QP was trending. We saw endless statements of solidarity coming in. Some, you know, notable ones we could talk about, but nobody put action to words like Opsu did uh, with their own walkout yesterday. So we got to hear J.P. Hornick down at Queen's Park as well. That was a changing of the guard at Opsu. For a long time, Smokey Thomas was their president and a lot of folks were frustrated with that leadership and a lot of work went in to change that over into something obviously far more progressive militant even and I was that was the moment for me where I started to get 
excited at the idea of more wildcat strikes. And uh, yeah, I was proud of Opsu for, for doing that. So other notable mentions of support, and I don't want to give them any credit, but it is worth discussing because if we're talking about bringing everybody into this and recognizing the dangers of this, Layuna, ugh, I, <laughs> you know, Google them. I don't have time to get into how bad they are, but just know they campaigned essentially for Ford in the last election, uh, pretty tight with developers. We'll just leave it there. They've even come out, and they were pretty early in sending out their cautionary statement um, against Ford's actions. That surprised me. Um, Santiago, are you waiting for the police union to chime in or what? <laughs> no, not even remotely. That would that would be... <laughs> no, I, I long stand by the belief that police unions are not actually unions. Uh, and and I, I will stand by that forever. They, That's okay. I'll, I'll hold your hand and stand here with you, buddy. Yeah, class solidarity does not extend to police unions, and that's just where I'm at. Yeah, we did get the firefighters. They had a smoking statement that I saw come out this morning. Um, firefighters <laughs> I didn't even are intend good in that. My book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's endless. We'll see how many resources go into those solidarity statements. Right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be some fines to pay. And uh, some st strike pay funds to top up, um, especially if we expect more of the same here. So where are we at now? Uh, today is Saturday, and it didn't just end yesterday, right? Uh, the OFL, together with QP, are holding what they're calling Solidarity Saturday. And um, they're shutting down Young and Dundas Square. I originally reported this to you, Santiago. You kind of rolled your eyes. Uh, is that just is that not is that not cutting it for you? Well, I mean, I living in downtown Toronto as I do, I feel like Young and Dundas Square gets shut down on a what feels like a weekly basis to me. Like that's just the thing, right? Going to shut down Young and Dundas Square, it sends a message, but it doesn't. I mean. At the end of the day, it's also largely a pedestrian intersection. Largely, like, there's not a lot of cars that really go through Young and Dundas Square because it is such a chaotic part of the city, because it is, like, one of the most pedestrian-heavy areas in the city. I think it's, I mean, it's one of the only uh, diagonal crosswalks that I can think of uh, in Toronto, right? Like that's that how confuses a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, like that's how many pedestrians we're talking about. And for me, like if we're going to be shutting down roads, let's shut down, let's shut down roads, you know, let's let's go for the DVP. Let's go for the gardener. You know, let's actually send the message because that's what's at stake here. Right? This calls for action that is far more consequential, if you ask me. More disruptive. Mhm. Mm exactly. Certainly, like we've got to bring the province to its knees. And, and a lot of folks understand that there's, you know, political implications to that. You see it on social media. I'm sure you hear it from your neighbors and friends. You know, when when they're inconvenienced by a strike, they groan often, quite often. They blame labor. They blame the unions. Uh, however, I think public sentiment has shifted a bit. I, we will still see the same kind of complaints, no matter how disruptive or little disruptive we are. But more people are coming around into just how bad this is. I mentioned the Twitter space that we had. There was uh, a speaker on there. In their bio, they 
they identified as liberal conservative. So I was cautionary uh, when they came into the space, but they were fully on board. They understood the implications of this, did not like it, and wanted to do something about it. So, and I have seen, like you said earlier, 55,000 employees, especially in the educational sector, that touches a lot of people, right? I've seen a lot of people change their profile pics to I support QP and they have, they're the least political people I know. Like, yeah. I mean, when you, whenever you get a number like 55,000, right, you run into the degrees of separation theory at quite an extreme level, right? Because for those who don't know, like the six degrees of separation theory is essentially that you are only six degrees of separation from anybody else in the world, right? Now, that's anybody in the world. When you bring it on a much closer level to somewhere like, you know, Ontario, really, I mean, four degrees of separation would probably do it. Now, that's just between one person and any other person. When you bring that to 55,000 people, the degrees of separation for anybody in the province from one of these education workers, that's very little. One or two. One or two, guaranteed. For most people, one or two degrees of separation away. Um, I mean, for myself, as an example, my partner, her mom is a secretary um, at a public school, right? Her entire family um, work in education. So I have very few degrees of separation from this. And I'm sure the case is the same for a lot of other people. So what we're running into is that, like, if this isn't affecting you directly, it's affecting somebody you know. Or it's affecting the people somebody you know cares about, you know? So it's quite a large influence here. And it's about to get bigger, right? 2,200 Go Transit workers have just voted, 81% of them, uh, against Metrolinx's latest proposal, right? So uh, starting Monday morning, Go Transit is pretty much going to be shut down around the city. Yeah, and, the, and, and and not just the city, right? Because it's it's the, the buses. So that's uh, shutting down Mississauga, Peel. There's, I, I forget the list, but for a lot of people who commute into the city, they, they won't be able to. On bus, on go buses at least, right? There, there is a, a very large implications to that. 100%. Like that, the only way York Region is essentially connected to the city of Toronto, where all the jobs are, is through go transit one way or another. And yeah, they'll be on strike. Now, this isn't a solidarity strike. They are in negotiations with Metrolinx, obviously an awful employer, but connected through through partnerships with the province it's complicated but these are the type of negotiating tactics people can expect right and so i think like that's why a lot of unions need to get on board with this because they can just expect the same uh when they go to negotiate this is starting to be the new standard right santiago earlier you said like there's really nothing to lose at this point i think workers and unions are starting to get that idea that you know, we've always understood the value of a strike. It's supposed to be disruptive. It's meant to demonstrate just what happens when you fuck with workers, how important we are when we withdraw our labor. You know, you call us essential. Let's just see how essential people are. And uh, it just kills me when folks, um, you know, oh, I sympathize. I understand that's an awful pay scale. But do they have to be so disruptive? 
Can't they do this after class if they really loved students? And that rhetoric is just so old to me. It's it's I but I think again more people are coming around to understand the purpose of a strike. It's it's not supposed to be pretty. Let's rephrase that for a second too. Like let's rephrase that argument. You know, people say, why can't they do this? Why can't the government pay the workers their fair fair wages? Why can't they do right by workers? Right? Do not blame the people. It's victim blaming is what it is. And these arguments are gaslighting. To blame the people who are being taken advantage of, that's victim blaming. It's the government's fault for not paying enough. And let's, you know, we haven't really gone into details about, you know, the treatment of education workers. So I'm just going to dig into that a little bit, right? We're talking about, I think they've received, what, like 2% raise over the last 10 years, 12 years, something like that. They've received next to nothing. I mean, it's far. I mean, and really, let's not talk about percent raises because it hasn't even come close to keeping up with inflation. So essentially, over the last 12 years, their wages have been going down and down and down. They're being paid less and less and less. This is the people who make education possible. And you know what? I I just I, I need to talk a little bit because I wasn't a student that long. I mean, I am a student right now, but as a as a high school student, as an elementary school student, That wasn't that long ago for me, not really in the grand scheme of things. And I want to talk a little bit about my experience with education uh, assistants and the people who make this possible, right? Because, you know, people, when you say janitor, they think of, you know, just cleaning the floors, right? But that's not, that doesn't come close to covering the extent, right? It's, It's far beyond that. I mean, these are people who... First of all, they're people, and they're people who students have relationships with. They're people who they talk with the students, who they, they're, they're a form of support as well. I have had tons of janitors um, throughout both elementary and high school who were just great support for me, who were part of the culture and the community of the education institutions. It goes far beyond what people think. Same thing with secretaries. Secretaries are the people who make everything possible. You think a school can run in any sort of way without secretaries? I mean, the work that they do keeps everything going. And they don't get deserve to be paid a fair, decent, livable wage. Right? These are these people are the community. These people are part of just as much of a part as teachers, as what it means to, for a school to work and also what it means for students because they're not, they are people who interact with the students and they're people who make everything possible. And so they've been paid less and less and less. They deserve to be paid more, without a doubt. The offer made by the Ontario government isn't even, isn't even inflation. I mean, that would be the minimum, but it's not yeah. even that. The hashtag 39K is not enough. Like that is referring to the average salary of those workers. You know, Santiago just explained how essential they are. That's that's well under the Canadian average. And when I was looking at some of the numbers that QP was providing just to drive this home, 33% of those workers I were sole earners, sole income earners in their families. So that means they're living in poverty and they're taking care of, our children. That's that's astounding to me. So just to give more details there, because you're right, we didn't quite spend enough time on that. The province 
QP is asking for 11.7% raise. And this is to accommodate for years and years and years of what Santiago rightfully described as pay cuts, right? They have less spending power than they did 12 years ago. And their working conditions have deteriorated in those years. So their job is harder. And the province came back. Talk about bad faith actors from the very beginning. The province's first offer was 2% raise for those folks that are earning less than 40K and 1.5% for everybody else. So they weren't even close. That is not negotiating. And that's not coming anywhere near catching up with inflation or making up for the lack of pay. And Santiago said the money is there, even if, I mean, we can name all the things that we could defund, like the police, to make room for proper spending. But just in education alone, they just sent out $200 checks per child to every parent as a bribe, essentially. They knew this was coming and they buttered them up to get them on their side. But the point is they also spent that money. That money could have been the raises for these workers, but they chose to send it out to parents. They treat us like consumers. And so for folks that are saying, you know, where, where would you find the money? That's where, that's where they could have found the money. And you know, there's a million other places to do that. So This is just trampling on workers, not just their rights, but just like their dignity. When you when you understand what they needed and then what you offered, that is just a slap in the face. So it's no wonder wonder QP is pissed off. And um, yeah, I also I want to mention because people I mean, we hear this literally every single time and it's such bullshit. Where do you find the money? What do you mean? What do you think magically happens to this money when you give it to education workers? What do you think? It just disappears and vanishes in smoke? No, that's what happens when you give money to rich people. I mean, we're, when you're talking about wages at this level, it's all going right back into the economy, right back in. It's being spent instantly because it's nothing. Like, we're not talking about people who are paid particularly well. This isn't going into savings or anything. This is bare essentials to survive kind of money. And that money is going right back into the economy, and it'll circle right back. Like, come on now. this It's such gaslighting every single time that they say, like, where are you going to get the money? Where is the money going to come from? What do you mean? The money's there, and it'll come right back. That's how an economy works. And they act like we're idiots to not understand that. I I mean, come on now. Sorry, I just... No, man. And let's bust another myth while we're here. A lot of the lies coming out of... See, I can call them a liar without getting kicked out of anywhere. But the lies that are coming out of Leche and Ford about sick days. So you might hear some feedback from folks saying they have 130 sick days. They're saying that that's because that's what the province is saying. But those are... Those are part of the short-term disability that's there to protect workers. That's something we fought for. Just because not everybody has those protections doesn't mean that's frivolous. And nobody is abusing those. It's not easy to go on short-term disability. It's not full pay. And it's a load of shit. And what it is, is Ford, again, trying to pit people against workers and getting people to punch down instead of up. What I mean by that, and you know, I say that a lot on Twitter when people come after, you know, why does so-and-so get this and I don't? And they're not talking about corporate welfare. You know, they're talking about someone else from the working class. And it's just like, you're looking at the wrong people, 
right? Don't look at these folks as asking for a lot of money. I don't care what I do care, but what a janitor makes somewhere else or where a secretary makes somewhere else, right? Unions are there to bring all those wages up. So we can't hold them back in their fight because that'll just stall everybody else's, you know, and if we allow them to come down and pay and to be valued less, we all will be. And so these are the only folks that are out there bargaining in great numbers that have that collective power that can help push back against that decline of wages that we're seeing. And that that is the front line there. And they're the last people holding that line. So, you know, I, I am really eager to see a general strike. And I want to talk about that, like what it looks like how promising that the prospects are here and, and who it should involve. Cause it's not just unions. I'm not in a union. Are you? No. no. Well, you're in the student <laughs> union. <laughs> like, well, we won't, maybe I mean, we won't I, talk. I, I, I wouldn't classify that really <laughs> as a union. I'd consider it an activities committee. Well, let's just say not all student unions are created equal. All right. We don't want um, to discourage any, any folks out there that if you do want to turn your student union militant, by all means. Um, no, and but and the other thing is that, like, for example, because my program, we were going through an interesting uh, situation last year where um, the college, Humber College, was not allowing us to record on campus without providing a two weeks notice, which was incredibly harmful for journalism students. Right. And and at one point we were even talking about, you know, because we didn't have a lot of hope in our union. We're like, we don't need to go through our union. We'll make our own. Like, that's the other thing is like you don't have to rely on what exists. You can create your own structures and your own paths and do it your own way. You know, it doesn't have to rely on people who are who are not going to do anything. That's the other thing. Yeah, we'll get more into that. I do want to the OFL. You know, we had Patty. Patty Jarvis Coates was kind enough to join our Twitter space. Uh, and I just, I kept trying to get her to come on the mic there. Uh, it was kind of last minute and I didn't want to put too much pressure on her, but she was really awesome. And, you know, putting aside the fact that perhaps the tactics that they're using today, tomorrow, you know, aren't where we're at. She was assuring folks that, the OFL was putting a lot of resources into this, that they were in for a general strike. I, I don't know if she used those words exactly, but what she described that they were doing and what she was encouraging from folks certainly sounded like wanting a general strike. So that was really promising to hear. And I think there's other kind of signs that we might be going in the right direction or at least that there's it's percolating a little bit more than we've seen in a long, long time. My favorite moment, uh, Fred Hahn in the legislature, as he's getting kicked out, you know, looks down at the floor and probably at the Minister of Labor because the premier's a coward and I don't think he was even there. And uh, you don't know what you started. <laughs> and it was to me, it was like, well, if anybody knows what what's he just started it would be fred right like it what did he start fred like <laughs> tell me like oh, what yeah. is, is that you know is that what we've been waiting for so i that moment there kind of gave me a little bit of goosebumps and um i hope fred knows the fire he's lit you know by sending his workers out like 
I hope he feels that warmth of that fire for a long, long time because I am incredibly proud of what they've done there. But um, that kind of gave me that feeling, Santiago, that, uh, you know, no doubt it's been brewing for a while. But how are you feeling? Like, are we headed there? Yeah, I mean, you look at, I definitely think we're heading there because, I mean, for one, the implications of the use of the notwithstanding clause is something that reaches out to all labor, right? Now, let's talk about the size of labor because it's far bigger than these 55,000 QP workers because that is just one part of QP. QP across Canada is actually 715,000 members strong. 715,000. And that's just QP. Labor in Canada is 4 million workers strong. Wow. Do not mess with four million organized members of labor. That because that's who they're messing with, right? Because that's what the implications are here. The implications are that this could be used against any of them. So it's in all of their best interest. I mean, talk about creating class solidarity, right? It's in everyone, all of their best interest to fight back against this. It's it's I love your enthusiasm, so I hate to come in here and like be that bit of a Debbie Downer, but we all know that not everybody in a union will understand these implications, right? Like there has been a lot of good work in terms of politicizing union members, but they are just an exact sample size of the folks you have around you, right? So if you've got folks in your family, just because you're progressive, you know that doesn't mean they're progressive. Even if you talk at them all day long, that might not matter. So clearly there's 4 million unionized workers. Will they all come out if they're paid strike pay, right? Like that is a big work uh, part of folks being on strike. It impacts them negatively as well, financially. So I was really encouraged when Lana Payne came to the mic yesterday at Queens Park. Now, Lana is the new president of Unifor. Um, Say what you will about, we should be Spelling out all these acronyms, folks. I'll link some notes, uh, link some information in the notes. But Unifor is a huge union as well. And it sounded like to me, Lena, Lena promised to pay the strike fines incurred in the Ontario strike. So that's one of the barriers kind of we've got to make sure we address both the strike pay, like if that means go funding or these unions need to bolster each other's purses. But if workers are going to feel a negative impact and they don't understand the reason behind it, that will be a problem, right? That won't be as effective. So, you know, but again, it's encouraging that there's obviously they think of these things and they're trying to demonstrate that, make it easy for folks to come out like, look, we will take care of this. Your workers will not feel the pain except for maybe on their feet from walking picket lines. So... That's definitely needed is more union leaders. Maybe if they can't get into a strike position safely, I don't know what their deal is, that they make sure that other folks are are able to do it, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I would say also just that when, when we're looking at this, right, obviously 4 million people are not all going to have the same views at all, but it also this is something that extends beyond workers who are currently unionized, right? This is something that it, it's a class issue, right? If you're a part of the working class, you have likely been taken advantage of at some point or not, especially in the last few years, right? 
when it comes to not being paid fair wages, how many people can relate to not being paid fair wages, right? How many people can relate to exactly the treatment that is that they're getting right now? And also, I mean, you know, a lot of the messaging from the progressive conservative government has been aimed at parents, right? Trying to rile up parents. Parents are not necessarily monolithic either, right? Like there are a lot of parents who they don't want to see the people who help take care of their kids all day be paid starvation wages, right? So a lot of them are on the side of the workers here. There is a lot of solidarity going around. And, and I'm, I just want to mention that I'm very hopeful about that. Absolutely. And these workers are parents. They understand the impact, right? These educational workers are, many of them are also parents. So to try to pretend that it's workers versus parents just seems absurd to me. Um, I don't think they've thought this through, right? I think someone described on the Twitter space as kicking a hornet's nest, you know, like he just doesn't quite understand how many people would be upset by this. Um, they they seem to be relying on, you know, historically teacher strikes have not gone over that well. They are not received well. They are incredibly inconvenient because of the way we've structured our workforce. And it forces a lot of people to stay home and take sick days or worse, you know, they may not have those protections. So it's one of those strikes where folks really need to understand the importance of it. So, you know, as much as folks can do to, to have those conversations with the people around them, bust those myths and really start working on every single person around them, bring them over, that's critical. Like unions, like we said, just can't do it all. It can't be up to them to politicize their members solely. That's that's just not how things work. Your boss or whatnot can't just tell you how to feel politically. Um, a lot of that has to come from, from something a little bit more intimate. Yeah. And when it comes to talking about, I, I, I also just want to mention, because, you know, we're talking a lot about unions, right? When it comes to, to labor, it doesn't end at unions either. And I want to be, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about that because like at the end of the day, unions are, in my opinion, like the starting point, the bare minimum, right? But when it comes to, when it comes to the workplace under a capitalist society, the workplace universally operates under an authoritarian system, right? We do not have democratic workplaces. Unions are t- introducing a type of democracy, but like it's still a limited one, right? What really people need to be aware of is those power dynamics in the workplace and the fact that uh, for the most part, businesses workplaces they do not have the best interests of the people who work there in mind they're trying to maximize uh especially when it comes i mean for corporations they're trying to maximize the amount of money that goes towards shareholders that means constantly looking for ways to minimize the amount of money they have to pay to the people who are actually making the money for the companies and that is a universal principle right so when it comes to talking about this issue and how widespread it is, this is a pattern that is applicable to literally anybody who is a part of the working class. And I just kind of wanted to go into that a little bit. And I think I saw that as well on social media. I keep going back to the Twitter space. You guys 
really need to join them because they lead to such great discussions. We have and so many speakers, and I would say the majority of them were not unionized, but they all did something on Friday, uh, whether they threw their own action in their small town, like our comrade Jay Woodruff, who's been on the show a few times, and you know, couldn't find one on the picket finder. So held his own action. QP, you know, helped facilitate it to a degree, but really driven. And we had other folks there who are normally advocates for ODSP. But, you know, we smell a fight. And people who have that working class consciousness, and and obviously when we say working class, I know that term is problematic. It does not mean all people who work. It is everyone by capital. Um, we can get a little more nuanced than that, but you know, there's no middle class, upper class, lower class. Uh, we're all working class, particularly if you're listening to this podcast, you are working class. <laughs> and um, they, they understand, like, I think if we boil it down to how I had to explain it to my kid, it makes sense. And, and people are feeling it. They're feeling it. This is a bully that we're up against in the most, you know, basic sense, right? Like, let's remove the politics a little bit. He's a real bully and he is going to do whatever he can get away with. Bad stuff. And one union can't stand up. One sect of people fighting for ODSP on their own won't get that. And they recognize that because especially folks that have been fighting for increases to the rates of OW, Ontario Works, which is essentially welfare for folks who don't know outside the province, and ODSP is Ontario Disability Payments. And those folks are in legislative poverty, and really no one takes up their cause unless they're on it. And you can only imagine what advocating for something like that without a union, without money, while you're struggling to eat, looks like. And those folks understand the value of this fight right now to take hold of this moment where we need to demonstrate our power as a collective, as a province. This is so important when you're in class warfare, right? Not only does it help people understand we are all one class with one cause, it shows our enemy, which is folks imposing austerity on us from above. It shows them that they have gone too far, and it puts them in danger, not physically, not their lives, but their political lives. And that's all that matters to them sometimes. So we absolutely need to demonstrate in massive numbers. And that momentum has to be held up until he bends. QP <clears throat> cannot lose this fight. Because if QP loses this fight, we are going to see a whole lot of bad. One of the things we had in our notes here is, privatization of our key services is on the line through this. Right, Santiago? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's really what it all comes down to when it comes to this, right? It's a classic conservative tactic as old as time, which is constantly defund public services until they do not function and then privatize. And that is what they are trying to do here. Um, there was an article in the Toronto Sun written by Brian Lilly, who uh, is a conservative columnist who is already calling for school choice and vouchers, right? And that's how they do it. They start introducing a two-tiered system and then move towards full privatization. It's clear as day. This is not an issue of they're not, not paying the workers because they don't have the money. It's not a money issue, not even remotely a money issue. It's a defunding public services issue 
And it's not even the only instance of it. I mean, we're seeing that in healthcare right now as well, right? That's been the other aspect of this. I mean, healthcare and education. What kind of villains, because, you know, you're talking about bullies, what kind of villains go after healthcare and education, like the most fundamental of rights in, a, in any civilized society, healthcare and education? Yeah, not, let's talk to the healthcare workers out there. We know the nurses have been treated like garbage right there. Pay raise was legislated at, you know, one and a half percent that in denial of their collective bargaining rights. And our hospitals are in crisis. We had we talked about health coalitions on another episode with Peter Bergamanis, and he talked about the atmosphere in the health coalitions, how they were in this crisis mode. They understand that we are so close to losing public health care completely at this point. And, you know, the neoliberal model of making public services so bad, so underfunded, so intolerable that even though you might not have the funds, you seek something elsewhere. You seek a charter school for your kids so they, they're not disrupted by a strike, so that they're not in a crumbling school. You try to get ahead of the waiting line by scraping together whatever you have. So they know this, and they talked about the need for a general strike back then, and that it was actually labor that was hesitant to take it to that level. So I think what this does, what QP has allowed, is set this precedent, a new precedent, that they can jump on. It would be a perfect time for healthcare workers to take job action in any form to make this part of a general strike. Obviously, they have a new position where they can't risk folks' lives. So I'm not sure what that looks like, and I'm not going to speak for them. But this is the time right now, right, to make sure that that is protected as well, because 100 percent. And it's not just healthcare; It's not just education. This man wants to strip all of our green spaces. And in fact, he's using this moment, Premier Ford, to do just that. Things he promised he wouldn't do. So like Santiago, like endless things are on the line here because he will just keep going and going. Yeah. And when it comes to the green pill, I mean, it's a particular level of audacity, right? Because this is an issue. He had, he, he had, he had tried to do this in the past. The public outcry was such that he was forced to retract it. And he, in, when he was campaigning for his second term, he promised that he would not touch the green belt. Now he's going for it. Why is he going for it? Because his development buddies want the development contracts. That's the only reason. It's incredibly transparent what's going on here. And he's using this moment when people are focusing on what's happening with QP to hope that people are too distracted to notice that he's doing that because these are incredibly unpopular issues, right? Incredibly unpopular. And one thing also I, I just I want to mention too because when we're talking about privatization, right? And I know that anybody who's listening to this already knows <laughs> the dangers of privatization, but I'm going to just like throw it out there anyways because it's always good to like talk about the fact that like the United States uses vouchers and they have a two-tiered education system and um, there's been multiple studies. Um, Stanford actually did a study uh, and they found that vouchers do not improve academic achievement, right? Uh, I mean, 
I don't think I have to tell anybody about what a failure the U.S. healthcare system is when people are constantly dying because of lack of access to healthcare. That's what they're trying to do. You look at the South, you see what a disaster that has been, and they're, they look at that and say, that's what we want. And why? Because they're bought off to do exactly that. This is not a political thing in the sense of they're not doing this on an ideological basis. This is purely because of who stands to profit off of the privatization of our essential services. Yeah, I mean, like, I think Ford is too stupid to understand that he, the entire neoliberal model, 100%, but it is ideological, right? Like, that this is one, this is what capitalism is. This is especially what neoliberals do in terms of stripping public funding to drive people to be completely dependent on the market alone and there to be no social safety net. Well, you know, just enough to keep workers alive, some of them, just enough of them. But you talked about it being unpopular because, you know, Mike Harris, we had the last time we had any kind of real job action to get really excited about, to be honest, was uh, back at the Days of Action, Metro Days of Action. And that's in the time of Premier Mike Harris, who had incredible credible levels of austerity cuts that the province still feels today. Those are generational cuts, as has as will be the ones Ford have already implemented. And when Santiago says it's unpopular, some people might be wondering, and in particular, the notwithstanding clause, I took political science in school, and when we got to this topic of the notwithstanding clause, it was understood that it wasn't greatly used, even though it was there for the premiers, because it is what we call political suicide, I apologize for the term, but a political suicide in that you can use it, but you'll pay for it next time around, right? Vote them out. Uh, that's exactly what will happen if you use it, because, you know, we all look to the charter. That is our Magna Carta. That is, we think it's so precious. Uh, we, we need a whole episode on how it's really not worth the paper it's written on, to be honest, when it comes to really securing rights. But that's not what the most perceptive uh, m most Canadians perceive it as. And so when you trample on our charter rights, right, Freedom Convoy, I'm talking to you, where are you at uh, protecting our charter? Um, you can actually stay home. But they they aren't supposed to use it because they want to get voted in again. Well, Ford's in a unique position. He's in his second so-called mandate, uh, majority mandate, and he's got nothing to lose. He's not getting the job again, and he has got a lot of people he owes favors to, let's just say. He's got a lot of donors he's likely made promises to, and we've seen it especially in his persistence to strip the green belt uh, for developers. And I think what you're seeing here is just this firestorm of stuff that is likely to come down the pipe should he not be stopped in this moment, right? So if people wonder, you know, how why is he doing something that is going to be so unpopular that he'll be remembered for? It's like, because he doesn't give a shit, he'll get paid. He'll get paid. He'll get a job in the private sector once this is all over and he'll be rolling in dollars, no problem, no sweat off his back, totally be able to 
pay for private education, private health care. It will not impact him in this way. He's got thick skin. He can deal with people being upset with him, calling him all kinds of names and blaming him for the downfall of Ontario. He's okay with that. He He's clearly okay with that. And uh, I think that's what makes it just so clear. Like, it's now or never, right? It's now or I guess the other teachers are next. And that's someone we've not talked about, Santiago. Uh, they were curiously absent from our discussion, and they are curiously absent from the picket lines. We're talking about the other teachers' unions. I would have thought we would have seen a little bit more than some well worded statements and their leaders getting up on soapboxes. Teachers union leaders have instructed workers to cross virtual picket lines. So starting Tuesday, uh, the province plans to pivot to online learning. And that means teachers for OECTA, that's the Catholic Teachers Association, for ETFO, the Elementary Teachers Federation, and the OSSTF, which is your high school student, uh, high school teachers, they're all going to be working Tuesday. As of now, right, as of the time of this recording. What do you think about that? I mean, I asked a lot of people, I'll share what I heard, but I want to hear from you. Should they be out there? I mean, I absolutely think they should. First of all, education uh, workers... That uh, Well, the 55,000 education workers are not the only people who are being taken advantage of. There's been an incredible amount of cuts to education. Teachers have been uh, protesting over the last few years as well. They have all the reason to be angry uh, as well. I see no reason whatsoever why they wouldn't be standing in solidarity right now. Um, because also, I mean, Ford has very much made education a target. When you talk about privatizing education... That's also taking away their jobs, or at least changing it. Um, the amount, the classroom sizes, all the, I mean, the amount of bullshit that goes on in education um, from a provincial funding point of view, you would think that it would make all the sense in the world to be standing in solidarity. So I, I don't really have an answer for why not. For me, like, I'm surprised I didn't bring this up earlier because it really upsets me, not just from the obvious standpoint that, you know, every union should be out there in solidarity, especially education workers. But these folks work side by side with the folks that are on the picket line. What is going that going to do to the work environment afterwards? How is that building any kind of workplace solidarity? I know we're divided into different bargaining units for various reasons, but it's typically to our detriment. And I know that when the teachers were on strike, I've seen comments that QP workers did were asked to to go into work and some did obviously cross the line. But this isn't a moment for a tit for tat. You know, this is a time to capitalize on this moment as a working class struggle. And I I do worry about the future for you know, the education sector, should they not? And um, I've seen a lot. I think teachers unions might be unique. And, you know, if I'm wrong, again, I'm not a teacher. I seem to have a lot of teacher friends, so it might be a bit of an echo chamber. But I've seen a lot of them openly calling on their union to join the picket line. 
So they're appealing to their provincial executive, asking them to take a different stand on this. And I've even seen some of them questioning whether they will go to work on Tuesday with or without orders from their union leaders. So, I mean, that is still yet to play out because I think a teacher's union is unique in that they understand this struggle a little bit better because they are obvi- they have been treated so poorly in negotiations for so long and have been actually pretty inadequate in their strikes. Uh, there's lots of reasons behind that, not you know, not trying to slight them, but they need a moment too, really badly, and they'll be next. So I I hope this plays out a little bit different by the time this episode airs, something has changed, um, that OPSU and QP have helped give courage to some of these unions. But I am shocked, especially the OSSTF. Uh, I know a lot of good people that worked on Karen uh, Littlewood's campaign, and she had the promise of being progressive. I would have actually picked her opponent, to be honest. I'm not sure if that's where the problem lays, but uh, I need those folks. We need those those folks to come forward and and do a little bit better. Um, it, it's actually astonishing to me. Um, and I think this brings us a little bit full circle back to you know general strike, right? And the need for a general strike, right? Like this is the time for everybody to stand together and shut everything down and show exactly how important all of these positions are in society because, you know, the schools, you need the schools, right? You need the schools to be working. Education is a pillar of society. You need hospitals to be open and be able to be taking patients. You need bus drivers to be uh, taking people to and from their place of home to their place of work and back, right? You need all of these things for society to function. Pay them an adequate amount, not even adequate, pay them what they deserve to match with that, to show how important it is. And if not, shut everything down. Shut everything down. That's where I'm at, is that we need to shut everything down. 100%. I think it's important, you know, we talked about unions, and I know you've tried to draw us back many times, so we'll do it again. Labor's important. What they do now is very important. I'm not going to minimize that. You know, the OFL has definitely got to take leadership on this. I, I think they are. Um, but we don't need labor to lead. We don't need them to initiate everything. This isn't the type of movement or moment where you need to defer to any kind of leadership, right? Because this fight is every everyone's. So I think everyone has a role to play in this. And if they're not happy with the level of tactics being used, if they're not happy with the representation they're getting in their own neighborhood, they've got to we've got to do something about it. So before we end the episode, I'd like to spend just a little bit of time giving folks some ways that they can make an impact so that when we're asking if we're headed for a general strike, they can help make it so, right? It's not a sit back and wait, see kind of moment. This is a take charge. And like I said, everyone has a different role to play, especially if you actually visualize this as warfare, right? This is class war and not everyone is on the front line. That's never the reality, but we certainly don't send them there without supports, and ideally, right? Um, so that means, you know, attending the picket lines, if at all possible. 
QP, we will link QP and OFL sites to our show notes because they are doing a great job of keeping all all kinds of events up to date. And like we said before, they're right across the province. So folks can jump in, start their own, find one near them, whatever. But also, isn't this a great teaching moment for our children? Now, you know, you've got them all day. (laughs) I know what that's like. I am a mom. So this, I understand the impact this has. So I'm using it to take my little one, my biggest little one anyway, to the picket lines. He went with us to Queens Park. I needed him to understand what collective power looks like. I mean, that might backfire on my house against me later, but I I really want him to know what this is. And I let him, his teachers know as well. He will not be crossing any kind of picket, virtual or in person, and that this will be a teaching moment. Someone said they're they're learning online. Let your kids learn on the line. Okay. If you can't get to a line, have these conversations. Make some signs. You know, I, I tweeted a whole list, if you guys can get onto my Twitter, a whole list of things people can do to jump in. But it can be so simple as make signs with your kids. Put them in your window. Make sure every single person out there knows what's going on and where you stand on it. Uh, Another good tip that I heard online yesterday, and you might discount like your little community groups as being able to play a part in this, but they're not. Whatever you do, whether that is a a knitting group, um, a parent teacher group, you know, maybe that's more obvious, anything, uh, a grassroots movement that's for housing, that is for healthcare, that is for whatever, get them at the very least to send out a message in solidarity, right? Get them together as a group, go to a picket, hold a solidarity event, fundraise for the for the strike fund. It, it's countless, right? But that pressure, that momentum, it's on us as well, right? It's just not something we have to wait to see if it fizzles out. We've got to keep that fire burning. So, I mean, Santiago, what are you going to be doing, friend? Like, what is... I mean, we do this, right? That that is that is part of the role too, right? A lot of folks out there get on social media, and make some noise there. Yeah, I mean, I'm still, to be honest, figuring that out to a certain extent. I know there are things that I want to do, and it's yet to be seen. I I, I think I'm just feeling out, you know, what the energy is, what people are doing, but also, yeah, this is essential. Talking about what's going on because there's a lot of noise, right? And being able to, you know, throw out messages of solidarity to 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 be able to like speak about what's going on to be clear about the history here to be clear about the implications here to be honest about all of that that's going on that is so important because like we said like this is a much bigger issue right not a lot of people are talking about prioritization right now not a lot of people have caught that threat yet Right. A lot of it is focused on the very, very direct aspects of this, but not so much on the bigger implications. So talking about that is important. And I mean, I'm going to be at whatever strike, protest movements, occupations that there is going to be happening. That is 100 percent. I'm there. I feel like you're whatever. ready to light some tires on fire in the, <laughs> on the rail lines or something. You've got that glimmer in your eye. And uh, between that and writing maybe some compelling articles for your fellow students. Yeah, well, you know, honestly, right now, I'm, I'm so beyond writing articles for Humber. 
because that's not going to cut it. So I'm I'm weighing a lot of things right now. And that's why I mean I don't fully know where I'm going with this yet, but I know that this moment is essential that there's so much that can come from this. And one thing that we haven't also you know one thing that we haven't mentioned too much uh right now is the history of victories that have come from labor, right? Because everything, all all worker rights have come from victories, from labor standing up and fighting for them, right? You know, your five-day work week, your eight-hour work day, you know, minimum wage, et cetera. Like, it, the list is endless. I don't, I won't pretend to even be an expert on that because I'm not, and there's too much, and there's so much to, to learn. But the, the clear part of it is that Standing up and fighting for rights is how society moves forward. Waiting for those in power to do it has never worked. It has always taken people rising up and saying, enough is enough. We deserve more. We're going to fight for that. That's how the world moves forward. And I think that's why it makes this moment so exciting, because it potentially could be a lesson for so many people on that collective power, on the power of unions, on strike, on being disruptive. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I reject the use of the federal government to come in and, and solve this problem for us. That sets a whole new, very bad precedent. And what we need to do is show people exactly how rights have always been won, demonstrate it for them and let them see it in real life, not in a history book. And uh, although it's a matter of securing rights and not expanding them at that po- at this point, that's where it leads. Once everyone understands, including neoliberals and capital, that we have harnessed that power, it will completely change the game, right? It will completely, we then can to start to expand rather than always being on the defensive. So I really hope Ontario keeps up the momentum and seizes this moment, and we do see a general strike. And uh, I will do anything in my power to get it there. Although, you know, our reach might be limited, that doesn't mean I'm not going to fight like hell as well. So I hope everyone kind of takes this on themselves in some degree. And in the words of Fred Hahn, you don't know what she started, right? Like, and that's exactly... What he means by that is kicking open this hornet's nest, it's going to backfire on them. We're going to make sure that it backfires on them. It's, it's not about asking for crumbs, right? No, no, no. We need so much more than that. And, and that's what it takes, right? And also, like, as is the intro to every episode, this is what democracy looks like, right? 100%. Thank you, Santiago. Thank you, Jessa. <laughs> like in all things that we do, there is a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff. Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon.com 
backslash BP of disruption. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of disruption.